Let's continue worship with a reading from, <clears throat> I don't know what from. Uh, <laughs> rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your request be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. This is the word of the Lord. You can be seated and say hello to someone as you be seated. Okay, good morning. Great to see all y'all in green. So much green. I love it. Uh, Glad you're with us. Uh, Today... um, we're going to be walking through the first 11 verses of Romans um, as we begin to wrap up our exploration of the biblical portrait of the Holy Spirit. That's what we've been doing for the past about two months. So let me read. We'll pray, then we'll jump in, okay? So Romans 8, starting in verse 1 through 11. There, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirements of the law might be fulfilled in us, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. For for those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death. But to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. For the mind that's set on the flesh is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot Please God. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to Him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life. You might say is alive in your translation, because of righteousness. If the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the d- dead dwells in you, He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. Yeah, the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, I ask, Holy Spirit, you'd come right now and you'd settle on the hearts of my friends. God, and you would cause us to be able to push out all of the pressing distractions right now. Peace of God, would you come? Would you enable us, Lord, to understand and comprehend the mysteries in your scriptures, Lord? Father, I pray that you would transform marriages today. Father, I pray that you would empower and embolden your people today. In the name of Jesus, the Son of God. Amen. Amen. The first thing I want you to notice is the language used to describe the Spirit in this passage. He's called the Spirit of life, the Spirit of God, 
the Spirit of Christ. But in verse 10, he just interchanges Christ himself with this whole list. Simply the fact that the New Testament writers would use language like this interchangeably speaks of their understanding of God as three in one, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, all acting, all working as one together. In verse 9, it's the Spirit of God dwelling in you. In verse 10, it's just Christ in you. Verse 11, his spirit dwelling in you. Romans 8 is, again, refining for us who the spirit is and what the spirit does and is doing. But here, Paul is also talking about how me and you interact with that spirit and basically introduces two modes of existence. He's saying God's spirit has done something for you and in you through Jesus. He's taken you out from under what? We call it condemnation. The law of sin and death. That's what he called it, right? And he's put inside you God's own spirit. Now you need to act and walk and think in accordance with. That's the language. According to the spirit. He's talking about a massive recalibration. He's talking about a paradigm shift in which someone's entire way in which they see the world is radically changed. He says, in light of the cross, now by his spirit, you have a choice. So do I. He's saying there's a fork in the road right now, right in front of you. You have a choice as to what you will conform to, and the choice is no one but yours. You alone can make it. No one can make it for you. He's saying you are the one who has to decide what reference points you will use to define ultimate reality. Huh? You have to decide the glasses by which you will see the world, the compass with which you will go through your life using. If you will live in accordance with, whatever that means, Jesus, Spirit of Christ, or the other option was in accordance with the flesh. Most people don't use the word accordance anymore. At least I don't in every language. Lawyers might use it. Engineers might use it. You know, build this in accordance with some, so, and so, and so, whatever. It literally means in agreement with. That's all it means. In conformity to, the root word, accord, literally means to give power. The UN, accorded power, voting power to so-and-so country, right, for this purpose. We're talking about what you give power to. We're talking about what has ultimate authority in your heart and life. When we live in accordance with something, we are living agreeing with that something, whether it be an instruction manual to how something's built or some other thing. You're submitting to a method, a way of doing things. When we live in accordance with something, we are yielding to that thing, establishing authority in our hearts and lives. You're giving it power to guide you. That's what it means, y'all. The captain guides his ship with his compass because he knows his compass points to true north. You have a reference point for your life, team. You have a reference point, something by which you live your life, guide your life every day. You're looking for things to cue you in on what? Who am I? And what will I act like today? What will I think about? What's my attitude today? All of us have reference points that guide our lives, often in very subconscious ways. He's saying... Who will you give authority and power to when it comes to reality? <laughs> What's real, right? So we've spent the last two months digging into God's spirit. And the obvious question is if it's going to mean anything at all for us, we have to decide, right? What way will we now reference our life in accordance with? 
What points will we use as we go forward, right? What's the other opposing reference point that he, that he offers here? You have according to the spirit, and then according to what's the other mode of existence? The flesh, right? So in the Greek, that word is sarx. What does the Bible mean when it says flesh? Does it just mean this hunk of meat up here that we're all staring at? That you're, right? Is that what it means? There have been those who see a dichotomy between spirit and flesh in Scripture and then begin to think, well, the body must be evil. Actually, all physical things are just evil, right? And what we need is a purely spiritual existence. Now, uh, you can look in Greek thought. This is uh, massively influenced by Platonic form. You can Google it. We don't have time to talk about it. But some Christians conclude we need to cure the spirits of the body. So we got to treat the body with severe asceticism, right? uh, And this can lead to almost masochistic forms of Christianity, self-hatred, even self-mutilation, even self-mutilation in the name of God is is done, y'all. Because people think the body is evil. The flesh is, I got to rid myself of this hunk of flesh, and so I'm going to, right? But dude, if you remember Genesis, we know that our bodies were made good. God called them good. We know the body itself can't be inherently sinful because Scripture tells us the Word became what? Flesh and dwelt among us. And what does Scripture say Jesus was? The perfect sacrifice for sin. Dude, your body can't be the problem, y'all. The Word became flesh. What's more, Jesus had a real body when he was resurrected. He wasn't a ghost. In the resurrection, Jesus was not a disembodied spirit. He had a real physical body. In Luke 24, he says, see my hands, see my feet, myself, touch me and see. For spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. Y'all, in the resurrection, you'll have a body. Do you have a Christian theology of this? Have you read this? Is this stretching you a bit? So our bodies, nor our, the physical universe, can be synonymous with evil, team. All that being said, we also know that Jesus seemed to think you are a creature made of two materials. You are a creature who is made to walk in two worlds. You are made of flesh and you are made of spirit. You are made of earth and you are made of the breath of God. But some rift has occurred and set these two things at odds with one another in some way, kind of like they were made to work together, but something has caused a divorce of the two. And now humanity is in some ways at war within itself. So Paul almost sounds like a schizophrenic in Romans 7. For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is my flesh, Sarks. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now, if I do what I do not want, it's no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. All right, weirdo, right? No, no, you can relate to that, can't you? It's all too real, isn't it? It's all too real to have a desire to do something good and have not the power to carry it out. It's like every day, bro. (laughs) I know I ought to be doing something else right now, but I'm just going to watch TV, you know? All right? So Jesus would say things like in Matthew 26, dude, the spirit, oh, dude, the spirit's willing. The the flesh is weak, though. It's it's been compromised in Jesus' mind. Or maybe it was easily compromisable. Maybe a bit more. John 3, 6, Jesus says that which is born of flesh is flesh, but that which is born of spirit, now notice capital S. That's not just a spiritual being, that's the spirit of God, capital S. That which is born of capital S, spirit, oh man, spirit, right? John 63, um, it is the spirit, capital S, 
who gives life. The flesh, it's not very helpful. Oh, but the words that I've spoken to you are spirit and life. Dude, that's a bold claim, bro. Jesus, you're gonna make that claim? You're gonna say that your words are spirit and life? What does Paul mean by the word flesh? What's encapsulated in that word? See, what's interesting is the ESV translate that same Greek word sark in Romans 2.28 as physical. Physical. For no Jew is one who's merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical. So flesh isn't simply referring to meat and bone, although it does consist of that. It's more than that. Jesus said things like, you judge according to the flesh. I judge no one. What does he mean by that? So what are we getting out of this? Well, flesh does not equal sinful or bad. It may mean equally, it may mean easily compromised. It may mean the side of us that's more susceptible to sin. But remember, y'all, they are not just sins of the body. There is spiritual sin as well, isn't there? Right? There's physical evil, but there's also spiritual evil. Is there not? It's not that flesh is only bad and spiritual only good. It's not that simple. So when Paul says live according to the spirit, he's not saying just be spiritual and totally disregard the physical. He's saying align your physical life with one specific spiritual being, God himself, the work of Christ. That's what he's saying. There are other spirits out there, y'all. A couple of weeks ago, we, talk, we learned that a spiritual, one of the spiritual gifts is discerning between spirits. All right, so, so this doesn't just mean act like you don't have a physical body and, and reach for a completely spiritual existence. That's not what it means. He's saying align your heart, align your physical life with one spiritual being, Jesus, God himself. Therefore, to live according to the flesh, at least in some ways, must mean living and walking and thinking with only the material world as your source of reference for what is real. In some ways, not at all ways, but in some ways. That's what we have to be talking about when he says, how did Jesus say, what does he say? Hey, don't judge according to the flesh. Is he talking about just your, no, he's talking about something else as well. Something else is encapsulated in that word flesh. It seems that what Jesus meant by you judge by flesh, he's saying you are living and thinking and judging in a closed system, closed system with only your narrow perspective for how you go about living life. Remember, when Jesus saw rich people giving large sums of money and one poor woman giving basically a penny, he said what? She gave more than the rich guys did. Now, if you're sitting there, you'd say, uh, Jesus, I don't know. Economics is not your area of expertise. Uh, the rich people clearly gave more money. No, what, what's he pointing out? He's pointing out us another value system, another way of looking at life that's not just from your own narrow perspective. He, dude, there's another value system out there than the one you subscribe to in life. And it vastly conflicts and con contradicts a lot of values we have in life. Dude, you, can I just, let me just slide this across the table. Your perspective is skewed. <laughs> you are biased. You have bias that you cannot avoid, primarily the fact that you were born post-enlightenment, 18th century. So we think of spiritual things and physical things with very interesting perspectives uh, in contrast with how biblical authors thought about it. In other words, he's saying, you are only considering what your eyes see from your own worldview and your own value system. And there's more than that. There's other value systems. And you're not considering 
the power and the presence of God. So all of us live working out of an equation. It is the formula by which you live and guide your life, okay? And our equations go something like this. My attitude, my day, my level of joy, my level of peace, my levels of security is equal to my possessions plus my relationships plus my job plus the state of my digestion plus how much sleep I get equals who I am, equals how my day will be. Equals, will I be a person full of joy and peace and happiness? Equals, my attitude defines me, completely defines me. Most of us in this room are working with an equation that looks just like that. And the problem with that equation is it does not leave room, it does not leave a space for the activity of God. It does not leave, no, in that equation, you are defining reality on your own terms. And there is no space for what if, Let me just, what if God wants to actively engage you in your heart and life right now? What what if he wants to be an actual influence over the way you go about living your life? What if he has actual real power, power to adjust and, and give you strength when you need it the most? See, most of us just don't have an equation that leaves room for that. Most of our equations are all of the physical things that we see equals how my attitude, prove me wrong, bro. All the, physical, all the physical things in your life equals how your attitude is gonna be that day. My kids are freaking out. I'm having a horrible day, right? My, job, my boss is killing me. Oh, my day sucks. Well, well I shouldn't say that. I'm sorry. I'm gonna, sorry. <laughs> You're living as if the only real thing is the physical. And the most real thing in the physical is guess what? You, right? Your body. Your perceptions, your wisdom, your thinking. Here Paul is saying, dude, each of us has a mode of existence. We can either live in accordance with, in compliance with, the physical realities that everybody sees. We can structure our lives and minds in such a way that all authority really lies with us. Our bodies, our strength, our agenda, our power, right? Or you can choose to live in reference to and in conformity with the reality of Christ, His spirit, his strength, his agenda, his power, that can break into your real existence at any moment. These are the two modes we have to choose. I can't choose for you. I can get up here and spit and scream, do all I want. You have to choose. What mode of existence will you function out of? The reality of the spirit of God, will you believe that he can and will and wants to engage you in your real life here and now? Your real attitude towards your job? Your real attitude towards your wife? Dude, can you point to anything in which you can say, Jesus is influencing me in this area? And if not, you're living by the flesh. You're not living according to the Spirit. How? Right? There's two modes of existence that he's talking about, and it's signified by the word in, right? And we only seem to get two options. We are either in the flesh or in the Spirit. Now, modern people don't like binary options, do we? We, we want a spectrum of options, but here, God seems to be saying you can either be dominated by systems and structures of the physical world, or you can be dominated by his spirit. Which one will you choose? Which one will you run your life out of? And he wants you to be self-aware, y'all. He, disillusionment and self, that, he says no, no room in the kingdom of God. He doesn't want you to be living a lie. He wants you to be self-aware. 
And so he gives you a way to find this out about yourself. He says, just look at what you think about. You want to know? You want to know? Most of us are like, no, I don't want to know. Thanks. Can we go? No. Yeah. You want to know if you live according to the flesh of the spirit? Well, you're, I got the mic, so well, oh well. He says, look at what you think about. If you want to know, just look at your mind. You see, the whole part of, one of the main points of this whole passage is for him to help you understand, hey, this is the mode you're in. He says, for those who live according to the flesh, dude, they set their minds on the things of the flesh. Those according to the spirit, they set their minds on, that's, that's, it's, if the framework by which you are trying, listen to, listen, please, open yours. If the framework by which you are trying to squeeze out some satisfaction and peace and joy in life is a framework in which only the physical is thought to have any value. He says, you're living in flesh. You're living in accordance with the flesh. Guys, I love you. Can I ask you an uncomfortable question? I got one okay, so here we go. (laughs) What does your mind naturally fill itself with when you are not at work or dealing with any responsibility? What are the things that your mind naturally drifts to? Is it that house on Zillow? You know the one I'm talking about, right? Is it that job? Dude, that job would fix everything in your life. Triple digits, you know, six digits, whatever, right? Is it that relationship that if you could just have that one, man, everything would be okay? Is it a hobby? Is it an obsession to buy the next thing or at least do all the research you can possibly before you buy the next thing? Or is it just good old-fashioned entertainment, right? I'm amazed that so many Christians never see a correlation between what they fill their minds with on a daily basis and their spiritual life. It's not a surprise to me when people come to me and say, God seems dead. The Bible's blah, prayer's blah, worship music, blah. I'm frustrated or I'm, I'm bored or I feel empty. And I don't ever ask anyone this to their face because I don't want them to think I'm a jerk. But can I ask you a question since I'm safe behind the pulpit? How much TV do you watch every day? I believe the national average is somewhere around three to four hours. You don't think that's affecting the spiritual state of your life? What other things do you give that much time to, bro? How much time do you spend scrolling down social media? Dude, your phone will tell you if you got the guts to look it up in there. How about this one? How much time do you spend shopping online? There's guilty. That was mine right there, right? Dude, if you are entertaining yourself from the moment your mind gets free of responsibility to the moment you go to bed, I would guess there's a fair amount of internal frustrations and a sense of disappointment under the surface of your life already. And what Paul would say is that's the stench of death because the mind set according to the flesh is death. That's what he said. You can already smell it in this life. When we work within a closed system in which the only reference point we have is our own strength, our own flesh, and everything that we can see, right? You're literally entertaining yourself to death. Like, I'll lend you a good book, man, (laughs) right? There's so many other things you can fill your mind with, all right? He says, if you want to know what you're living in accordance with, all you have to do is look at your mind. And here's the thing about the mind. 
It's not just what we put in it. Your mind will affect the way in which you see reality. Your, the way you think about things frames reality. It, it dictates your perspective on the world. So setting your mind on God's spirit doesn't mean you need necessarily to constantly, what are you saying, Chris? I just constantly read the Bible and listen to work. No, I'm not saying that. It does mean that what you fill your mind with will dictate how you see the world. In other words, setting your mind in accordance with God's spirit or the flesh impacts how you perceive what is happening right now, right? This is my favorite place to consider this dynamic. How does your mind dictate your perception? What you fill it with? Okay, let's just, let's go here. Ready? Then we'll go. My favorite place to consider this is in the church. It's fun for me because it probably reminds me that I'm not the point and the way in which you engage has less to do with me and more to do with the state of your own heart. Um, so let's just say that there are two modes of existence, all right? I'm not saying I've convinced you of that. Let's just say there is, okay? For sake of argument. Let's say that mode A is the flesh, okay? And mode B is the spirit. If you are routinely in mode A, you judge reality in a closed system in which the activity of man is really what matters and really has the final impact. What does that do to church? Well, in mode A, all that's happening here is a bunch of people singing to the ceiling, apparently getting some emotional charge, clapping their hands to nothing, and this guy gets up and gives an underwhelming speech. I mean, he's clearly not professionally trained, right? And he makes a little religious sense, sort of, but not much sense. He's using a lot of religious language, talking about this religious historical figure. They close their eyes at one point. They all pretend like they're talking to someone, and no one can see. That person's crying, so that's really uncomfortable. Don't they know we shouldn't cry in public? In mode A... If that's all that's happening, dude, we're a bunch of weirdos, bro. Like we're basically in a cult and no different than witchcraft or superstition. That's mode A. Dude, in mode A, church is a super lame hobby. Dude, you could be at the lake. <laughs> you could be taking a nap. You could be golfing. Dude, for so many people, I just described their understanding of Christianity because it's in accordance with mode A. Mode A is the framework in which we judge life. That's church, all right? And jeez, no thanks. I'll find another hobby. Paul says the mind that's set in mode A, dude, it's that framework ends in death. Why? Because in that framework, dude, it's all up to us. I'm not gonna lie to you. The strength of man can be impressive. Like we can do pretty awesome things. But when it, whenever it comes to establishing a just and fair society, we always tend to grind a group of people in the gears, don't we? The strength of man is just not very promising, in my opinion. And that's why that mode A leads in death. Okay, what about mode B? Well, in mode B, a church service is those who have been brought from death to life, joining with a never-ending song of creation, of uh, uh, rising up to God and thanks and praise. Mode B, we aren't singing because we like the song and for once the dude's guitar is in tune. I mean, yes, please play in tune. Mode, mode B is the ransomed of God giving back all that he's given to us in the sun. In mode B, dude, in mode B, it's the kingdom of light, light expelling the kingdom of darkness. Dude, in mode B, we're enthroning the king on our hearts as he is in heaven because of his unending goodness and self-giving to us. Mode B is warfare, yo, right? We're fighting for the souls of humanity. Mode B, a church service is not some dude spewing self-help inspiration so you can try harder, right? No, mode B is the very voice of God, man. And just like God spoke life and order into darkness and chaos, we believe when we gather and open his word, he can speak life and order into our chaos, into our darkness, right? Mode B, God's power can actually be experienced in his children here and now. 
Paul says the mind that's open to God's spirit invading and exerting his power over the physical, do that framework ends in life and peace. Hmm? What do you see in the church? What's really happening? Is your mind open to God's activity breaking in at any moment or is it a closed system? Is it spiritual worship or is it physical? Is it earthly? Is it man-focused? Or or, or, are we connecting to anything that transcends what we're doing in this room right now? What we're talking about is analogous to this. Do you remember this old picture? Raise your hand if you see an old hag. Wow, interesting. Raise your hand if you see a young lady. Raise your hand if you could care less. Cool, awesome. (laughs) Raise your hand if you're annoyed when people say raise your hand. Me. It's a matter of perception, isn't it? And here's the funny thing about perception. You tend to get stuck in how you perceive something until someone else points out the other perspective. And what's more about this is both parties can defend their perspective with equally compelling evidence, can't they? No, it's an old hag. See the mouth and the eyes? No, it's a young woman. See the jawline? Yeah, both can say, have completely different perspectives and both be totally right. Interesting, isn't it? See, you need the Spirit of God to open your eyes to his work in the earth. This is why it says the mindset on the flesh is hostile to God. In fact, it says it can't submit to God's law. It won't because they don't see him. Their worldview has ruled out the possibility of his power and presence impacting them here and us. Let me ask you a question. When you come to church, when you serve in kids' ministry, do you see an old hag or a young woman? All my volunteers, kids workers, cafe workers, worship team, what do you see? Do you see an old hag or a young? What are you doing here? What are we about? Is God doing anything? Do you see God healing, saving, empowering, cleansing, and sanctifying? Or is it just amateur actors on a stage and babysitting? I mean, let's chat. Do you ever see the opportunity to walk in this door as going to war? right, for the souls of the kids that you're holding, praying over them, right? Or are you just babysitting, changing, right? Are we, are we, am I communicating here? I feel like I'm falling apart here, right? Is it not, what do you see? Okay, let's just talk about real life. What, what about your own life? What do you see happening in your life right now when you get up, when you go about your daily routines, when you make your coffee, when you drive to work, when you grind out the daily stuff, right, when you come home, when you deal with your kids, when you cook dinner, when you change diapers, when you engage with your spouse, do you see an old hag or a young woman? What are you dealing with? Don't you see? God is inviting you to see the entire world anew, to see everything about your life differently in a new light. God wants to impact the way you talk to your wife, bro. He wants to impact the way you raise your kids. He wants to impact the way you go to church, man. Everything has the potential to be the means by which God shows his unending love and power and grace to you in the Son. Everything. Everything also has the potential to be the means by which we respond to his goodness. But if you don't see it, you'll never know his life and peace here and now. And of course you won't obey him. You know why you won't obey him? Because you won't see him. You can't. You don't. It's a closed system. If you don't see him, if your reference of how the world really works is based on the action of man, it says your mind's going to be hostile to God. And it says you're never going to be able to please him. Are you struck by that? Doesn't that seem a bit severe? Like, lighten up, Paul. Sheesh, right? But don't you see what he's saying? 
He's riffing off the last five chapters. If you're trying to please God in your own strength, in your own action, number one, dude, it's impossible. We're not talking about like pleasing your boss. Like your boss, you just got to get him breakfast and tell him he looks good. And he's like, yeah, I like that guy, right? No, we're, we're talking about a holy God, the being who created all heaven and earth, sits on heaven, props his feet on the earth. But second, you're hostile towards God because you're ignoring what he's done for you and are insisting that you can do it yourself. That's the mind of the flesh. The mind of the flesh scorns the sacrifice of Jesus because the mind of the flesh thinks I can do it in my own strength. You're acting like your action is really what matters, not God's. And that's why you can't please God. See, most people think Christianity is like every other religion. We get a bunch of rules, and if we can follow them, then we'll get to some sort of eternal bliss, right? Put our heads down, start climbing the moral mountain of ethic, right? We'll get a few steps higher, we'll stumble back down. We'll get a few steps higher, we'll stumble back down. And for most of our Christian lives, we remain exactly where we are because our minds are fixed on what we can or can't do. They are set on the flesh. The whole point of this, right? The, almost the whole point of the book of Romans, right? Is that, dude, no flesh will be justified by the works of the law, Right? In fact, Romans 8 is like the crescendo of the last five chapters of Romans. I strongly encourage you to go home and read it and watch it climax at Romans 8. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of spirit of life sets you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done. Whose action is most important in this paradigm? God. He has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and force, and he condemned sin in the flesh. Guys, Christianity is not about what you do. It's about something that has been done to you. Do you have eyes to see it? It means the focal point of Christianity is not what you've done or can do. Our faith doesn't rest on our strength or on us or in circumstance or in any physical abundance. The substance of Christianity is the action of God, not your action. Do you see a young hag, an old hag, or a young woman? That's the question, right? Do you see moral striving? I've got to try harder. Or do you see the end of moral striving and life and peace and rest in the spirit of God, right? Do you see a looming mountain that you, you, you know you can't climb up? You know you've tried. You've tried. You've tried over and over again. You can't make it, right? Or do you see God's action lifting you up the mountain for you? His strength compelling you, right? I think today, God wants to rescue some of us from the pressure that you feel. The pressure you feel pressing down on you, saying that you are not a good mother, saying that you're not a good father, saying that you're a failure, right? Look, I, I, look I'm not, maybe, maybe that's true. But God's saying right now, I want to share my rightness with you so that you will no longer feel the weight of your own failure. That's the gospel. In fact, he says, I will put the pressure that you feel, I'll put that on my son. And it will weigh him down so much that it will crush him to powder. The pressure that you feel to perform, to be good, the pressure you feel when you screw up, to be moral, to be ethic, not to look at this, not to say those things, the failings over and over again, the offer on the table today is that God wants to take that pressure you feel and he's gonna put on his son for you so that you can walk out of here standing up straight, not bent over with the moral failures that we all live with, not bent over thinking the skeleton in the closet one day is gonna find us out. Because he said that there is no longer any condemnation in those who are in Christ Jesus. That means the weight's been removed and it's been removed in the cross because it's been put on the body of the son. Do you have eyes to see it? 
Do you have the audacity to believe it? That the power of God is greater than your darkest, deepest secrets that you hope no one ever finds out? Because that's where God wants to engage you today. Not in the area of your strength, in the area of your weakness, where you failed. There is therefore now no condemnation, no guilt, no fear of being found out, no more shame, right? If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal body through his spirit who dwells in you. Let's stand and pray.